Welcome to Talking TRM, the Travel Risk Management Podcast. I'm Bex Debman and I'm an independent consultant specialising in ISO 31030. During my transition from corporate travel to travel risk, I've met some incredible individuals driving travel risk management forward with passion and expertise. On this podcast, I'm going to chat with them about their stories and hopefully inspire our listeners to start their own travel risk management journey. Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking TRM, the podcast dedicated to travel risk management. My name is Travel Risk Bex and I'm your host for the next half an hour. Um, As is our uh, style with these podcasts, we've got another guest today, our special guest I'll introduce to you shortly. Um, And we have three questions to ask him and we will go through that just any second now. So um, my guest today is Mr. Jamie Williamson. I don't know why I've started you with a mister, but I just feel the need to today. I feel very, I I feel that it's an official thing to do with you, Jamie. So um, I can just call him (laughs) Jamie, it's fine. Um, We met probably about 18 months to two years ago um, as part of the BSI and ISO standard development for 31030. Um, And we've kind of had great meetings since you've been a big part of that committee and and really to be honest with you I guess I wouldn't have known about it because I don't come from the security side but having up until when I met you I didn't know um the institute with which you represent and I'm going to hand that over so that you can talk about it but I want to really kind of bring that to the surface today because I think again we talk about travel risk management 31030 like this brand new standard that's just appeared like it's a new thing it's not a new thing. People have been working in this area for many years and trying to do things and actually what it should be is a coming together of all of these things. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Jamie. If you could tell everybody um, who you are and what you do. And of course, how are you today? So I'm Jamie Williamson. I'm the executive director of a multi-stakeholder organization, which we can unpack a bit later on, based in Geneva, Switzerland, and then as the International Code Conduct Association for providers of private security. Uh, we have been going for just under 10 years. Uh, we're marking our 10th anniversary in 2023. 10th uh, anniversary of, thank you, um, it's been quite a journey. 10th uh, anniversary to uh, mark the sort of uh, establishment of the organization as a compliance mechanism uh, that's looking at an international code of conduct based on human rights and humanitarian law addressed to the so-called private security industry and i'm doing well today thank you good i'm glad to hear it i wanted i do want to unpack this a bit more so i know when we first spoke and and i've sort of talked about this just at the beginning i I wasn't aware of, of obviously this side of it why do you think it's so sector specific i think the let me take it uh, sort of a flip it around in terms of it's less sector specific it's more an area which is quite invisible despite being absolutely everywhere. I think uh, this we were to roll back uh, a few years as to why the association was created in the first place. Hmm. Um, it came from major incidences involving security contractors in exceptionally high-risk environments. We're talking armed conflict environments such as Iraq, Afghanistan, and Somalia. We're speaking in particular 2005, 2006, okay. and we're seeing a kind of militarized type of security and humanitarian law, Geneva Convention type abuses and violations, as well as human rights abuses being committed. And a wake-up call then to the international community in particular 
to say, well, we now have these so-called private actors operating in armed conflict environments and someone needs to regulate them. There has to be a level of oversight as well as some accountability. So that was very much the genesis. But as we've moved ahead over the past few years, there's been a much broader discussion on security, which is linked to kind of security, business, good practices, security and human rights, human rights due diligence, ESG reporting. Again, we can speak about that a bit later on. And a realization, uh, oddly enough, sudden, despite the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, security is absolutely everywhere, that actually private security uh, is a key stakeholder in virtually any sector that we look at, which involves travel, the agribusiness, the extractive industry, humanitarian organizations, mega sporting events like the FIFA World Cup. So wherever you look today, you will find private security. Yet there's rarely a discussion about how private security can have both a positive as well as negative impact on their clients and broader supply chain questions and risk management. I completely agree with you. I was just thinking there's been a real um, thank you for explaining that. And I think it, it makes perfect sense. Interestingly, I was with a client who was going through just last week um, and we were visiting a risk management company and he's ex-military and he was actually talking to me about actually some of the pricing that changed so obviously some of the private security guys were getting whatever they were getting at a certain time and then there was this big drive of private security coming in from other countries which really then pushed the day rate mm -hmm. down considerably and all sorts of other sort of questionable things were happening at around the same sort of time so it's interesting that those two conversations have kind of overlapped for me but I think you're right I mean certainly from a corporate perspective certainly it's everywhere and if it isn't it certainly shouldn't be and the no that it should be and the notion of it is there in some form and I think for businesses it seems to perhaps rear its head immediately in the form of cyber security of some mm. type and that seems to be how businesses kind of begin to understand that unless they're particularly dealing in high-risk countries and that kind of stuff then that's a different side to it but I certainly know since I've got into this role and I'm working with corporates I obviously used to always deal with procurement uh, for the travel side because that's where it mm. tends to sit but actually with travel risk management, it's not, yes, you want to bring procurement into the conversation, but actually when you've got security in a company, when you've got a, a, a CSO um, or a compliance officer or something like that, this is where this stuff really sits. And and I've seen a real change um, from the perspective of, you know, it was always all the way through me sort of being talking to businesses. It was always the CFO that had the ear of the CEO. And I honestly don't think that's the case these days. I think where they're present, it's the CCO or mm -hmm. the CSO that has really kind of made a difference. So I guess for, I know when we, when we first had these conversations and and I know it was a desire of yours to sort of, to make this, to make ICOCA, or ICOCA, or ICOCA however we pronounce it, uh, to, um, to, to broaden what, you know what that what its scope was because there was just so much more potential to it and i'm guessing that's happening now do you think some of the stuff and the work and the standards that and not necessarily the standards but this is the sort of the talk and the movement in this area do you think that's made a difference or do you see other things that are coming through that are, are pushing this forward and onto people's agenda i can say we are seeing a difference um we're seeing a growing awareness of the fact that we need to look at private security and we need to look at security more broadly speaking not only through a negative sense in terms of 
security are the bad actors. And whenever you use private security, something wrong is going to happen. It's quite the reverse. You need to look to security as a positive actor. It's contributing to the security of and protecting individuals, personnel, uh, property, and the likes. And if I consider the work that we've been doing over the past 10 years with a range of security companies, I mean, presently we operate with security companies that have operations in 100 plus locations, headquartered in 50 countries thereabouts. And these are from the large major international security companies to the smaller local security providers, mm -hmm. the SMEs. There's the debate is starting to gain traction in terms of how can security ensure that they are not only doing the right business in terms of profit margins, contracts, and delivery of the technical aspects, but how can they also ensure that they're mitigating any other risks, in particular the broader human rights risks, which they will encounter as part of their operations in many environments. And there's a whole range of issues uh, that we can look at. The interesting development has been you know, through our work, uh, oddly enough, we're seeing the security industry itself showing leadership, being one step ahead of the game in considering these issues. Why? Because it's about managing risk. It's about addressing security, and it's about now uh, capturing all aspects of risk as part of those operations and mitigating them. And those will include human rights considerations. They will include the kind of principles that are contained in the International Code of Conduct, that we oversee, which includes, as I mentioned, human rights as well as humanitarian law type provisions, but also labor relations, issues linked to corruption and the likes. So the leadership being shown by the security industry is having, I think, a knock-on effect upstream to the clients, to the users. And so the blocks now are a little bit with how do you bring in those stakeholder groups? We talk about travel risk management. How do you bring in the corporate entities uh, or anyone that's going to rely on security in one form or another to the table? And where are the leverage points on those individuals? And then how do you bring that awareness and understanding to them? On that, we can see the kind of higher level regulatory developments in the European Union, for instance. So uh, a few weeks ago, we were in Brussels, the day of the uh, adoption by the EU Parliament of their version of the Directive on Human Rights Due Diligence, which is now going through uh, kind of a trilogue negotiation. And it's clear that the drive by the EU to bring in human rights as part of corporate accountability and oversight in supply chains globally means that now there's a need to have that discussion of human rights, not simply as an obligation, but a little bit, you know, it's a commercial reality yeah. that yeah. companies and entities cannot escape that conversation, cannot move away and simply put human rights in some side office uh, in their main building but human rights and now security have to be central parts of that conversation. So I fully agree with you. you know, whereas in the old days, the financial officers would have been at the center of most conversations, we're seeing more and more realignment in terms of sustainability, security, human rights as part of those conversations because they all will potentially have an impact on the profitability as well as risk profile of those organizations. And I guess this is where the the code of conduct kind of comes into itself, doesn't it? Because obviously we, we talk about what we, we, we kind of know from the country that we're born in and that we live in, you know, kind of what is normal and, and what is okay there. But of course we know that that, that varies greatly um, across the world. And I think that this supply chain piece, this vendor management piece is the bit that I find really interesting, specifically in this travel risk management space, because for for the person managing that um, the travel, for example, in a company, 
if again they exist at all, which they don't tend to exist until a company reaches a certain size, they could be dealing on a program, you know, I don't know, so that they've got, you know, a 10 million spend program, and that's not much really. They they could be dealing with thousands of providers, literally thousands mm-hmm. of providers, be that hotels, be that taxi companies, be that ground handlers, be that they're doing some crazy event and goodness knows where and they need to use a local whoever. And one of the sort of mantras that I'm constantly sort of talking about is that actually you need to know who these vendors are. Like There's a whole due diligence piece here. And, and if you are going to put that reliance onto your agent or whoever it is that is organizing this stuff for you, then you still need to have your principles, your vendor management policies um, and your guidance as an organization. You can't put that on to the other company. They should have theirs too. And hopefully they'll take care of some of that stuff. But it's, it's the you know we've been talking about anti-bribery we've been talking about um the, the the human rights sort of stuff we've seen it in tenders for a long time but it always just feels like i've literally been in businesses where they've gone quickly write something those days are way behind us and this is something that we should be taking it just should be the integrated in every mm-hmm. part of our business right it's, it's a massive risk to business and and kind of just putting it out to other people and not taking responsibility of it. That's that's just not possible anymore, right? So have there been cases and I don't want to I don't want to sort of lead you anywhere that you can't talk about, but is the change happening, I suppose? Are people taking this more seriously now because people are now being held to account? I said, can I ask that question? Just without being without being too sort of is I it I think you can yeah, you could definitely ask a question. Um I think it's a, it depends. I think it's a yes or no uh, kind of approach. I think it's partly also a realization that one has to integrate this thinking uh, into the processes. So there's just maybe two or three points. Human rights. I think the first aspect, which is interesting, is moving away from a conversation simply about uh, the label human rights and unpacking that. Having folk understand what do we mean by human rights yeah. concretely. Um, naturally, most folk will look at human rights from the perspective of excessive use of force by a security provider. But then there's also questions of human rights of the working conditions of the security personnel, selection and the vetting issues, shift hours, issues linked to sexual harassment, uh, sexual violence in the workplace, uh, discrimination. So you have a whole range of kind of human rights labeled topics, which brought down to a granular level are the day-to-day uh, let's say, basis of good conduct that we would expect of anyone in any environment in any sector. So it's extrapolating the high-level principles down to something which makes sense. It's then trying to understand what happens if these things are not being uh, respected and the potential risk that goes with it. And so we've, for instance, just done a study on working conditions on guards in East Africa, and we've sort of used, uh, coined the term, you know, when the, when the abused becomes the abuser. Which means mm-hmm. if you are not having your rights respected, there is a greater risk that you are going to commit some abuse yourself because you're not operating to the highest standards, you feel victimized, and there may be a reason for which that either justifies or simply pushes you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. So if you're not being paid well enough, you may get into corrupt practices. If you're not being trained on sexual harassment and sexual exploitation, you may not understand right from wrong, some would argue, uh, when you're interacting with the local community or with uh, opposite gender uh, guards in the workforce or with clients. And then the third element, I would say, is looking also at you know, what, what exactly we're talking about uh, in terms of security. 
So your area of expertise, you know, travel risk management, and then looking at each of those steps. If someone is going to send out a team of individuals, the corporate VIPs to a location which is rife for new business. Take Iraq, for instance. Mm -hmm. Iraq is post-conflict, but it's still high risk and it's still quite complex. I've been there a few times, but a lot of folk won't go there because it's too high risk. But there's major investment possibilities for big corporations. And we're seeing that with the European companies in particular going there. So where would you find security if you embark on your travel? When you get to the airport, for instance, somewhere in Europe, you'll most probably find private security there. One of the larger security as G4S type companies managing the, the security as you go through customs, doing your pat downs, doing that first check. Not many questions will be asked there about the security or the risks associated with that security because one takes it for granted that they're properly regulated, licensed and vetted in that part of the world. This despite the fact that there have been allegations of wrongdoing by security guards and there have also been allegations of how the employers are paying those guards less than they should be uh, receiving, especially in airports. And we saw the strikes last year and the walkouts mm -hmm. also a few months ago. Then you get onto your plane. Now, when you go on the plane, you might have some security on the plane, but most times it's a different kind of airline security that deals with that. You arrive in uh, Baghdad, right? you get off your plane. So who's managing the security of the airport? First question in terms of mm -hmm. who has the contracts, how have they been issued, how are the guards trained and what responsibilities do they have around the airport? When you go through customs, there will be already security providers around the customs area be they local fixers or individuals who will help facilitate the move through customs for the corporate travelers. What is the security company that you're dealing with there? Who is the individual? Because nine times out of 10, you as the corporate traveler, you'll arrive in that context. You'll simply be told by your travel team, you'll be met there by uh, Mr. A or B, and you should give him your passport and he will help get, uh, basically acquire the visa for you. Then you come out of the airport, as you get through customs, you'll be taken to your security convoy. You have a security company you've chosen. And therefore you need to make the assessment as to, is that security company legit? Does it meet all the relevant standards? How have they integrated human rights, broadly speaking, into their practices? Are there any particular risks associated with using that company? And then that security company will get you to your hotel. And when you get to the hotel, you have a separate security setup at the hotel which will be screening the security company that's bringing you in. And then that security, most probably, of the hotel will be under a different management, part hotel management, part contracted out as well. So you have that element of the security that goes with it, and so on and so forth. So wherever one goes, there will be an element of security in that travel supply chain. Yeah. And each one of those potentially raises uh, benefits, of course, in terms of professionalism, but will bring with it their set of risks. And so the conversations you and I have had in the past was, okay, so how then, how do you bring that to the corporate folk, travel risk management folk, and have them understand that security is not simply about ticking that box. There are so many different parts of that chain until you get to your hotel room. And then when you leave the hotel room, go to your meetings, and when you finish your meetings, you go back to the airport that you have to take into account. And most probably, and this is not the $10 you know, million dollar kind of uh, supply chain, but even in that small supply chain, you're potentially dealing with three, four, five, six security providers. Yeah. Some yeah. with higher risk profiles and some with lower risk profiles. And how do you bring that into your considerations? From the human rights perspective, that should be straightforward, which is what ICOC is trying to do. 
mm. is to say there is one reference organization and there are certain reference standards that you can look to to give you that confidence and that guidance on the security provider. For industry standards, that's a different conversation because there'll be different standards in Iraq, different standards in the Netherlands as compared to the UK, the US and elsewhere. It just thank you so much for going through that. I think that's going to be so helpful for our um, for our listeners, but also just for me. Like I talk about it from the travel industry perspective, and I haven't even I have I've never done that journey like you've just done it through, and I haven't even considered. You've suddenly then just picked up another seven potential providers, haven't you, on that one journey? So add that into your travel providers that you've already kind of used, be it the airport, be it the plane, be it this, be it that. And what I always try to express to to companies when we're talking about data is you know you've got no idea where your data is going behind the scene you're not just at mm-hmm. the airport like <laughs> there's there's all sorts of stuff going on around you and your data is being sent to for baggage or from food and i just um it 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 can always it can almost feel a bit overwhelming can't it but i think that's the point that this is what we're trying to again achieve with this podcast is to remind people there is stuff out there to help you like this isn't yeah. just all from scratch that you've just got to pick it up but gone are the days of just not doing your due diligence you know like you have to you have a responsibility not only for your company but for your staff and your company's reputation and beyond everything else and actually once once you've got those processes in place it's not so difficult to maintain it it's just beginning to kind of to start that and obviously the larger you are and the more supplies you have the, the more intimidating that feels Not sure where to start with implementing a standard such as ISO 31030? A gap analysis exercise from Ascent Risk Management is the best place to start. Our expert consultants will take you step by step through your chosen standard and highlight any weak areas. This can be conducted remotely and the results of the gap analysis can form the plan for your targeted project. Contact Ascent today at www.ascent1, which is A-S-S-E-N-T-1.com and booking your gap analysis today. So let's let's get into your why a bit, Jamie, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. What is it that gets you out of bed every day? Why do you do this? What 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 moves you forward? I mean, I'm guessing it's definitely going to have something to do with people. Um, but go on. I would say the alarm clock gets me out of bed every morning, but <laughs> I think that would be the wrong answer for this particular podcast. I apologise. The... I look back at my own sort of track record. So I come from an international uh, sort of legal practitioner field. I started my uh, career many years back, a very young lawyer working on the first genocide trials in uh, Rwanda. And so dealing with uh, abuses, uh, genocide crimes against humanity and war crimes in Rwanda as part of the 94 genocide. I had a short stint with Special Court for Sierra Leone and worked a bit also in The Hague, uh, predominantly on Rwandan cases, but also linked to the Yugoslav situation. So the formative years of my career were very much driven through uh, the kind of punitive judicial aspects, but having witnessed and having come across thousands of individuals mm. and victims who had suffered uh, the worst possible crimes in uh, those environments. I then worked with the International Committee of the Red Cross uh, for about 10 years as well in a number of locations where I likewise exposed to a whole range of issues in terms of trying to prevent harm from occurring in the first place, uh, trying to interact with the key actors in armed conflict and other kind of environments, and also being aware of the fact that 
to make a difference. It's not simply about looking at the person's cat wearing the uniforms. It's also interacting with the policymakers, the regulators, uh, other organizations and likes. But again, having worked with the International Committee of the Red Cross on issues linked to Afghanistan, Iraq, and Guantanamo, for example, also seeing both the worst that man could do to man or humankind could do to humankind, but also seeing some of the best as well in terms of resilience, in terms of what matters, in terms of the values and ethics uh, that even the most punished individuals uh, would still you know, carry and uh, basically hold on to as their guiding lights in many ways. And so it's always been a way of saying, okay, so where are the areas where we can make that kind of difference? So what are the sets of actors with whom there's not been that kind of interaction? And the private security world, including the kind of military contractor world, was a natural knock-on from the ICRC because it was the rise of these new actors in these environments. And we were seeing harm in especially the heydays and so Iraq, harm being caused by a number of contractors in Iraq. And so the driver was then to say, okay, let's see how we can change that mindset, change the profile, and ensure that there is no harm. And so someone asked me the other day a quite personal question, uh, which is odd uh, from that individual, but it was nonetheless a personal question about whether or not I had been traumatized by the kinds of experiences I had seen uh, linked to the genocide trials and the likes, uh, bearing in mind that, you know, most of my colleagues were only about 23, 24 at the time when those were starting. And you see some atrocious uh, sort, of, uh, uh, sort of reports and uh, witnesses recounting uh, how they survived uh, some you know, horrendous uh, moments during the genocide. And so it wasn't so much a trauma as much more to say, what ultimately are we trying to do at the granular level? We're trying to prevent harm from occurring to any one individual. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. So rather than talking at the high level about corporate responsibility, accountability, uh, commercial kind of language, ultimately it comes down to what? It comes down to, for instance, looking at the negative. If a security guard beats someone up, you have a victim and a perpetrator, and the victim would have been affected. If someone loses his or her life as a result of an act, it's not through some civil litigation you're going to bring that person back. It's not through some compensation to the family. That person's life is done or changed forever. Likewise, if you're abusing security guards and security personnel. So the whole aim has to be to say, well, you want to ideally be driven by that pursuit, which is preventing the harm to any one individual by any other individual. Because once the harm is done, you cannot undo that harm. So the preventative work, which then works its way back up the different supply chains, uh, regulations and standards that we look at, it's critical because you're trying to put in place all those elements of the ecosystem to ensure that you build in that preventative aspect, that you raise the standards, that you mitigate and address risks, and that you introduce accountability. So we, I think, always have to remember, and I think in travel risk management, it's not about planes we're talking about, we're talking about travelers. We're talking about individuals. Yeah. We're talking about human beings. And so the consequences are potentially life, death, or they could effectively change those individuals' uh, lives forever. And so we, I think, should always try to humanize these conversations. As much as not everyone likes to humanize them, it does come down to that uh, in the end. And it does come down to taking standards, bringing the human component, and have everyone understand, okay, we can argue about technical procedural issues, but ultimately, this is what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to stop that one person or a number of individuals causing harm to someone else, and then having that, uh, that victim as what well his family or her family and communities being negatively affected 
uh, by that action. That's a little bit what gets me out of bed in the morning, beyond the alarm. <laughs> and wow. I mean, I just want to go back on a couple of things. I mean, I can't even imagine that at the beginning of, of your career, it must have been absolutely, well, just so intense, but also that kind of, I like the way that you sort of said, like, yeah, I saw the worst, but I also saw the best. And you were able to kind of get that balance because obviously you do see people's true metal in times mm-hmm. of absolute adversity and this strength that people have and this ability to kind of overcome things. But, but my God, I mean, you just said the word genocide and I literally got shivers right up my spine. It just, it just, it, it's almost the, the, the worst extreme that we can think of in this sort of stuff when things are being perpetrated by another individual on, you know, on countries or regions or whatever. Um, I'm sorry that you experienced that, but at the same time, I'm so grateful that you're in the place that you're in because of it. Um, but I, I mean, I just want to go back to this people piece. I mean, yes, Jamie, I can't say it enough. I, we all, the way travel is managed, it's just horrendous. It's, it's obviously generally managed post event for mm-hmm. most people. So it's, it's lines on a spreadsheet and you've got, you know, a finance team pulling their hair out because they're trying to match this with this and da, 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 and it's all just really, and it all just becomes so unpersonal. Every single line on that spreadsheet, and I've said it a few times on these podcasts, but I'll say it again just to get it out there. Every single line on that spreadsheet is somebody's lived experience. Just because mm-hmm. it might just come down to a, it cost pound fifty or it cost £10,000, whatever it was, that was a whole person's day, hours, evening, whatever it happened to be. And for some reason, we don't like talking to our travellers. We don't want to talk to them because they're a pain. They're going to just cause us problems if we go and talk to them. Um, we've got a podcast that, that came out with Carol Fergus, and she, she had this enlightening moment. You know, She's a travel manager, and she's always been in the sort of... She's, she's, she's great in what she does in DEI and all sorts of stuff. She's quite forward-thinking, but she suddenly was on a recent trip and went, I've not spoken to my travellers properly. I don't know if this works for them. I don't know if all this policy and process and stuff we're doing over here is actually making their lives better or worse, maybe making it more secure at some side. But what about the everyday stuff? Because as you just touched on, if you're getting, let's take it out of security and put it into the corporate world for a second. If you're being abused by your employers because actually you're expecting to do back-to-back trips Mm -hmm. and you have a young family at home and that's causing your stress levels to go through the roof, that's that's not good. And that's what we need to bring this back to. It's the it's the it's the everyday effect. Yes, of course, be prepared for the big stuff because that will have a major impact too. But that doesn't happen every day. It's the it's the everyday strain that we're putting on these travellers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's actually doing travel as well. I think the experience maybe of your uh, the other podcaster is I use the term you know humanising and dehumanising. We could talk about that in the security environment, but it also begs a question in the travel world. Uh, are we really treating sort of travelers in a humane manner? Uh, you know, I've been through many experiences, uh, many locations, uh, more high, some high risk, and you manage that. But one tends to get the feeling that if you even going through some sort of modern day airports in you know, the West, in many ways, the traveler at some point will lose effectively all sense of agency. Yep. So he or she will be put in an environment where you've got to go from your check in to the boarding of a plane, and then there's a system around it. And if there's suddenly a major issue in terms of overcrowding at the airport following, for instance, a strike, a general strike, and so suddenly there's an overload at the airport, 
you have the stress levels linked to all the travelers trying to get through customs and it's just chaos. Then you have the stress levels of all the security personnel uh, as who are basically trying to manage that crowd. And that then suddenly creates a situation where you have security personnel, and I've seen this, I've experienced it myself, are trying to move crowds in a certain direction. The crowds get to that direction. The security personnel are saying to the crowd, they're like, why are you here? You shouldn't be here. You should be over there. And then one or two individuals will try to contest that and say, well, I was told by your colleague to go there. And then the individual in uniform will simply say to the traveler, don't speak to me like that. Respect me. Uh, you have no right to speak to me like that, uh, and so on and so forth. And so suddenly the traveler becomes dehumanized. At the same time, the security guard is being dehumanized because that security guard is the front line of the tension. Yeah. It's not the airport that's taking the tension. It's not the CEOs. It's not the corporate actors higher up or the policymakers. The front line are the folk that have to interact with those travelers and the travelers that have to interact with those uniforms. That's where all the stress is. And that's where all the risks are at many levels. And, you know, today's an age post-COVID, a lot of that has, you know, traveled is, I would say, for many people, uh, not necessarily the most pleasant uh, these days. I mean, we have, you know, we can romanticize in the days gone by, but there is that challenge. There is that image issue. But part of it is because we are now dealing with crowd management, crowd control, and moving through efficient systems and heightened security number of airports and working security personnel potentially a lot longer hours and then putting them into environments which are a lot more stressful these days than they were years gone by in managing crowds so in travel even in western uh, sort of uh, airports and environments you do have those underlying stress factors which you will find replicated in high risk environments uh, overworked underpaid shift hours dealing with tension uh, all the time having to be very careful about personal conduct and if that's been badly managed in the, the West, for instance, where you're meant to have the highest standards of behavior, extrapolate to that to contexts where maybe there is weak governance or there is a level of corruption or where those standards are in place and this kind of education around security and risk and crowd control is somewhat different and quite distinct uh, from uh, the West, then you're going to worsen the potential for risks. You're going to make it tougher for the traveler and put the traveler in an even more risky situation have security personnel who potentially may react more forcibly than they should be vis-a-vis yeah. the traveler. And then that, of course, falls back within that bigger bucket of human rights concerns that may arise out of it. It's just huge, isn't it? And I think I, when you think about it like that, I've never, I have thought about it from the perspective of how the the frontline staff have always been treated within the industry. Like they're kind of, I've, I've said it before, it feels like sometimes they're cannon fodder. Um, and that can be across the entire piece, right? You know, and I'm sure it's across other industries too. But it does feel like we're still pretty low on pay. <laughs> and one of the industries, and I'm not saying that from my perspective. I'm talking about people working in hotels. I'm talking about people working at train stations. Talking about airports. They are doing long, long hours. There's more and more put on them. And then as soon as you know there's an issue, they're the guys that maybe they're made redundant, especially if they've been there for less than two years, zero hours contracts. There's always horrendous stuff that was going into COVID. And then suddenly everybody wanted their staff back. And funnily enough, they've all gone off and found different industries where hopefully they're getting treated better than they mm -hmm. were within the industry. And yet we're still questioning, 
oh, I don't understand why people don't want to work for us. I've heard some awful stories, but I'm not going to go into that now because we have, believe it or not, already been on for more than half an hour, which it just flies. And Jamie, thank you. I don't want to end, though, without just getting a bit more information out of you. So I'm sorry. Um, but I want our listeners to understand what, how do they start getting into this? How do they, what are your golden nuggets for our listeners to, to try and sort of start unpicking some of this stuff, which we know is, can be complicated? That's a tough, tough question in terms of golden nuggets. <laughs> in my mind, I think there has to be a coming together of, actually, we could use this term. It's commercializing human rights without making human rights into a commercial product, which means human rights obligations are there for all of us to respect. We all have our human rights and we have to be protected against abuses by and the individuals and so on and so forth and states and the likes. And so there's a very strong position to say, whenever we have a conversation about human rights, we should be speaking about obligations of human rights. It's an obligation, nothing more, nothing less. And that language doesn't sit neatly with the kind of corporate commercial world about obligations and human rights seems a bit too abstract for them. At the same time, speaking to the more extreme human rights world, when we said we need to bring in human rights and translate that into language which the corporate entities can actually understand, mm -hmm. some would argue you're commercializing human rights. You're making a kind of a for-profit argument to respect human rights, despite the fact that the obligations are clear vis-a-vis -vis human rights. So the golden nugget for me is when corporate entities, when folk working in travel risk management come together around the table, make sure you have all the right people in the room uh, you have the finance piece, you have the security component, you have the broader sustainability as well as human rights folk. Don't put everything into a kind of CSR, corporate social responsibility uh, pot. Doesn't really make sense, quite superficial in many contexts. And try to integrate those that human rights type language into the corporate decisions and understanding that they are part of your DNA. They're part of your good conduct and your ethics and your values. And those aren't simply nice to have, they must have. So it's not really a golden nugget, it's just much more common sense of bring them together. Don't keep them as separate entities. Make sure they all speak into one another. And for the security folk out there, don't frown upon human rights. And then human rights folk out there, don't frown upon security. And maybe human rights and security get together and put the pressure on the finance folk and the board to understand that these elements have to be integrated into their day-to-day -day thinking. They're both fantastic golden nuggets, considering you thought you couldn't come up with anything at all just then. You know, I caught you on the hop. Um, again, we, we yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think you echo what we've talked about in other podcasts. This is not stuff that operates in silos. It's all connected. And when you're making any sort of governance business decision, which is what all of this stuff is, if it affects your people or it affects your supply chain or it affects how you're doing business, that is a governance decision. It's not just, oh, it's got this budget, so we stick it over here. Mm -hmm. um, bring The more people you bring in to these conversations, the better. And I'm with you. Like, Don't just chuck it all in CSR or ESG or whatever else we're calling it. Sustainability and your, and your, uh, your objectives around that has got to have a voice by itself. So has human rights. It's not just a, an HR thing. You know, Let's specifically call out some of this stuff. Um, your plans for how you look after occupational health for your staff, you know, be that physical or mental health, 
that is a thing. Let's bring them out. Let's not just put them in a little room. Let's just talk to them. Because actually, when you do start talking to all these people, and I love it, it's my favourite bit when I start bringing the stakeholders together when I see a corporate, because mm-hmm. you just suddenly see all these light bulbs go off and people go, I didn't know you did that. Or, oh, wow, actually, this is all going to really come together. And you suddenly realise this bit of data, which in my case is travel spend, if that data is good, and it, it does, but you know, it's clean, it can help so many other people across the organisation and you can streamline stuff and actually doing stuff centrally isn't as horrendous as it might feel. So you might have more people's opinions to consider at the beginning, yep. which is not always great from a procurement perspective when you just want to get things down or you're getting pressure. But actually what you will find is that when that product or project or whatever it is launches and develops people will buy into it better because you've actually asked their opinion in the first place and it's going to be fit for purpose, one would hope. Um, Definitely. <clears throat> Jamie, thank you so much. Look, it's been a pleasure. Um, I've let us run over because I knew that it was worth it. And, <clears throat> and it's just it's it's just an area that I think none of us are considering. We need to think about more. But I want to... I liked the way that, again, right from the beginning, you were like, what actually is human rights? I think that a lot of this stuff was quite big and we don't want to talk about that, and we should. What does that mean to you as an individual? And let's get the learning from that point and then let's work out together. Um, I wish you all of the luck. And In fact, you're you're, you're still travelling quite a lot at the moment, aren't you? So your next journey, stay safe. Um, We'll do. Thank you for being a guest on our podcast. Thank you for all the amazing work that you do. And please, um, anyone who has got an interest in this, do have a look at this code of conduct. It is it is something that can be you know used across other industries and certainly considered in the way that it should be. Um, and it's a really good sort of starting point if you've never really kind of thought about things from this perspective and you're looking at your vendor management and other things. Um, so you have been listening to another episode of Talking TRM. My name is Travel Respects. Today we were joined by Jamie Williamson from ICOCA um, and we will be with you in the next couple of weeks um, with another episode. Uh, In the meantime, take care. Please look after yourselves. Please look after your people. And if there is one thing I can share with you today, just let's just just communicate better with each other. Let's come out of our silos and let's start having some conversations. Nobody gets out of bed this morning trying to upset someone else. Honestly, they don't. They're just trying to get on with their days. Um, So have a great day and we'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Talking TRM is in association with the Scent Risk Management. If you enjoyed listening to today's podcast, please subscribe and make sure to leave a review. If you need any help with implementing an ISO standard, such as ISO 31030, or if you have any questions regarding ISO, please reach out to a centrist management to talk to our expert consultants today. We can be found at www.ascent1.com. We're also on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, and links can be found in the show description. This podcast is a Clemark Studio production and was produced by Jessica Ingalls.